What up, guys? I'm here to tell you, homies, we gotta pay attention to our health. We so put everyone else's needs ahead of ours. If our partner's feeling sick, if our children are feeling sick, if a parent's feeling sick, we'll make sure that we show up for them. We'll make sure that we tell them to rest. But yet, guys, we don't do the same thing with our own health. So I am here literally to make it as easy as humanly possible for us women to really freaking show up, take our health seriously, but also have the tools that we absolutely need to take our health seriously, to actually improve it. So today, guys, I got my homie Cynthia Thurlow on the show to talk very specifically about debunking all the myths around fasting, because I actually have been intermittent fasting. And I've really noticed what a difference that makes to my brain capacity, to me being able to make decisions, to how I feel about myself, to my hormones, to my confidence. So Cynthia really does take fasting and shows us how to sync fasting to our cycle and why fasting is one of the best freaking tools for us to prevent disease. Guys, I'm going to repeat that. That fasting is one of the potential best tools for us to prevent disease. So guys, right now, let's start together taking our health freaking seriously, taking ownership. And now let's actually hear really closely to my girl, Cynthia, on the strategies of how to do that. So let's get into it. You cannot eat at 47 like you did at 18 or 17. Like you can't. And if you're still living that lifestyle, you're going to end up being a statistic and it's like I don't want that for people it's Mm -hmm. like you don't have to live that way it doesn't have to be your destiny yes it is harder up front to change your diet to prioritize sleep to to eat less often but ultimately you're going to avoid a lot of these chronic disease states that we now think are so commonplace Cynthia Thurlow, welcome to Women of Impact, girl. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really excited to meet you. Oh my God, me too. And where I want to start is, why on earth is fasting have, have insane benefits for women? Well, I think it really starts from, from an ancestral health perspective. This is how we are designed to thrive. We wouldn't be here as a species if we couldn't go through periods of having food scarcity. And so on a lot of different levels, I think women in particular have to embrace our physiology, not apologize for it, but also understand that fasting and eating less often can be part of what we do intermittently throughout our menstrual cycle, but also for women in perimenopause that are transitioning to menopause, you know, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, there are absolutely ways that we can integrate this into our lifestyle and be able to do so without apologizing for our physiology. I love that so much. But if you can list now like all the benefits that it can do for us, because I do think that in moments where we feel super fatigued or we um, have the, the, the hanger or we have mood swings or we have trouble sleeping, all these things really do like weigh on us, especially as women, because we're trying to do so much. We're trying to please our partners. We're trying to please the family and we have to try and show up for ourselves. So in that trying to do everything, we end up putting on weight and we don't know why because we haven't necessarily changed our diet. We get frustrated over things that we never used to get frustrated over. And you say that fasting can actually help all of these things. It definitely can. But I want to be clear before I start talking about the benefits that if someone is overly stressed, they're not sleeping, they are going through a divorce, they've gone through a job loss, you know, goodness, the pandemic, you know, the last almost three years of our lives, there's been a lot of extra stress. 
And fasting can be a form of beneficial stress, hormesis, beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. So if you are sleeping, your stress is dialed in, you're eating a fairly decent diet, you know, you're exercising, you're active, yes, fasting can be part of that. And some of the key benefits, we can get a reduction in inflammation. So sometimes women will have less pain in a joint, they'll feel less achy, they feel less bloated. Um, It upregulates something called autophagy, which is this waste and recycling process that goes on in the body. So it's as if your body is taking out the trash. We're getting rid of disease, disordered cells, things that don't belong. It can improve biophysical markers. So things like blood pressure, blood sugar, lipid profiles. We know that it lessens our likelihood of developing neurodegenerative disorders, things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, things that most of us really want to avoid. Mm. Um, It can also be really helpful, very beneficial for helping to balance, you know, blood sugar. I touched on that earlier, but I think for many, many people, they have been conditioned to believe that we need to eat snacks and mini meals and eat all day long. And I'm here to tell people the way to balance your blood sugar is to eat less frequently. And why is it important to balance your blood sugar? Because that controls your energy, that it controls your cognition, like how well you're able to think and draw upon words and all of those kinds of things. It's very important to stabilize your blood sugar so that your body is, you know, when when your blood sugar is stable, your body can effectively go in and utilize either um, carbohydrates or fats as a fuel source. Mm -hmm. And for many people listening, that may seem kind of overwhelming. Like, what does that mean? We want our bodies to be able to be flexible. We want that metabolic flexibility so that our bodies can effectively use different types of fuel, depending on what we're doing. If you're sprinting, you're probably going to be using predominantly carbohydrates. If you're doing a long form exercise, like you're hiking up a mountain, it's going to be more endurance. So you're going to be tapping into some fat stored fat as a fuel source. But for many people, what they don't realize is that keeping your blood sugar stable helps with, as I was mentioning, cognition, energy, sleep, um, also helps us, you know, be able to effectively use our metabolism in a way that we can, you know, draw upon stored fats as a fuel source. So in a lot of different ways, blood sugar stabilization is almost always one of the first things that I work on with my female patients, because more often than not, the fact that we're eating frequently, we're eating the wrong combinations of foods, we're eating too frequently can all contribute to your blood sugar not being properly balanced. Dude, thank you so much for breaking that down. Um, what One of the things I really freaking love your, in your book is you really do identify why this specifically is important for women. And for myself, my husband went on fasting because he'd done all these interviews. He had, oh my God, this is amazing. And so he starts doing it. So I'm like, cool, I'll do it too. So I just copy him. And of course, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. the results weren't the same. The effects weren't the same. He was having all these amazing things and I was just finding myself even more tired at one point. Yeah. And so what I realized is, and this is the thing that I really want to hammer home today, is it, it is done differently for women because of our cycles, because of mm-hmm. our hormones. And I'd love to go deep today on how we start to navigate that. And then the results and the benefits that as a woman it can have is just so beautiful and amazing mm-hmm. that I want women to know what the benefits can be before they dismiss doing the act. Because I've heard you say it broke your heart, but a lot of your clients and uh, were coming to you saying, just give me a pill, mm-hmm. just give me a pill. And the truth is, is that, by fasting, it can actually help a lot of women. You don't need to go to the pill. Yeah, and I, I think on a lot of different levels, we have conditioned our patients to mm. expect a pill to treat a symptom. And you know, certainly the pharmaceutical industry has reinforced this fact. And so the one thing that I got very frustrated with mainstream kind of conventional medicine, and I my whole background's in cardiology, 
was that I was just adding more and more medication because my patients were not willing to, for the most part, not willing to change their diet, not willing to exercise, not willing to, you know, prioritize sleep, lean into stress management. So I, I think that, you know, starting to change the narrative is really important for people to understand they do have control. They can be empowered. They can be inspired to take more control over their health care and their, their wellness. Mm-hmm. And one way to do that is to understand that there is this interrelationship between how frequently we eat, the food choices we make, and ultimately what, it, what translates into metabolic health. And metabolic health is, you know, is our blood pressure well controlled? What's our waist circumference? You know, what's our, what do our lipid panels look like? What's our fasting blood sugar look like? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, unfortunately, we've, we've contributed to this problem. And so I always say for the rest of my life, I'm going to try to continue to have this conversation to say, yes, it is harder up front to change your diet, to prioritize sleep, to, to eat less often. But ultimately, you're going to avoid a lot of these chronic disease states that we now think are so commonplace. How many people do you know that think it's totally normal to gain 30 pounds between the ages of 40 and 50? How many people think it's completely normal to be on five or six medications? And that is the norm. I think the average patient now is 15 medications. Mm-hmm. And we don't want that to be our norm. So I think in a lot of levels, we take care of everyone else as women. And it's time for us to prioritize ourselves. Love that you said that. And then I love that we really identified the fact that we do think certain things are normal. Like I joked, it was maybe even this morning where I got up and my back hurt and I was like, oh, it's age, right? And it's like, there's a part of me that allows saying that it's age to almost let go of the fact of that I'm responsible for having damaged my back in the gym, right? Or going too hard when I know I probably shouldn't have gone too hard. Um, and I think that just letting people know that some people may not even realize that, it, no, 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 it's not normal and not to blame you, but mm-hmm. to say, but now you have the control. Right. And that's what I really want to dive into today. And what you do so beautifully and eloquently in your book is you give people the stepping stones mm-hmm. in order to take that control back. So when you feel like you're so fatigued and there's no way out or you're putting on weight and you don't know why, or, you know, you can't show up for your kids because you just don't have the focus. And so, your kids are nagging at you and you're not actually paying attention and now you feel badly that you're not a good mom like there's so many things that can stem from um not really taking care of ourselves and our hormones and so i would love to talk about how we start to implement fasting how we use it in our cycle Mm -hmm. and i love that you talk about our 28 day cycle Mm -hmm. and then our life cycle Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, if someone is fatigued, exhausted, miserable, gaining weight, make sure you connect with your primary care provider or internist. Make sure you get some baseline labs. Are you, is your thyroid interactive? Are you anemic? There can be so many contributing confounding variables. So once that's all been taken care of, and more often than not, it's fine, then I usually like to explain to women, if you're still, you know, 35 and under, that you're still, uh, I would say, vulnerable in terms of, you know, your body, even if you choose not to have children, your body is primed to procreate. So I always say that, you know, fasting is one of many strategies that we can use for for our health, but it's also one that we have to be conscientious Mm -hmm. about that even if we choose not to have children, that 35 and under, your body is exquisitely sensitive to, you know, when we are not eating. And so really understanding that women that are 35 and under need to fast differently than women who are 35 to 50 versus women who are, you know, average age of menopause in the United States is 51. So just as a barometer, menopausal women and men can generally get away with different types of fasting than younger women. But I would say the average 35-year-old and under woman 
really looking at your menstrual cycle. So there's two u- kind of unique phases. There's a follicular phase when estrogen predominates. And this is, you know, from the day of bleeding until right before ovulation in a perfect menstrual cycle. And estrogen is the, our super hormone. So it allows us to get away with more intense exercise. We can push the fasting envelope. We can get away with... Um, you know, lower carbohydrate diets, if that's where we're focusing on, versus the luteal phase, which is after ovulation when progesterone predominates. And this is a hormone that you may feel a little more tired in this time in your cycle. And as you're getting closer to when you're going to menstruate, you got to back off on fasting, back off on the intense exercise, maybe moderate your carbohydrate intake. And so really teaching women that the five to seven days preceding your cycle, no fasting. It doesn't mean that you can't do 12 hours of digestive rest which I think is the bare minimum for most humans. That's really what we should make as the gold standard. But really understanding that once you start bleeding again, if you feel up to it, you can go back to fast. And we want to back off because that's a perfect example of hormesis, that hormetic stress. We want to be conscientious about that. Mm. And then when we look at women who are perimenopausal, 10 to 15 years, so 35, usually 35, early 40s is women are hitting that, that, that benchmark. And all of a sudden, we're not stre- as stress resilient. So as our ovaries are producing less progesterone, our adrenal glands start to help and pick up the slack. Mm-hmm. And so by picking up the slack, it, our adrenal glands are really designed to be this emergency backup system. And so understanding that it can, it's, that, it's, it's finding that, that balance in your body of little bit of stress is good, too much is not enough. So if you're sleeping through the night, which many perimenopausal women struggle with, um, if you are managing your stress, if you're doing the right types of exercise, which means not five days a week of CrossFit with no rest days, means strength training over you know just doing really intense exercise, good strength training days, maybe some hit, lots of walking is really helpful. And then an anti-inflammatory diet. And I really do think this is important for women to hear about the way you ate at 18 is not the way you can eat at 45 or 50. And it's a sorry state, but a lot of those foods that we think of as being really benign suddenly became very inflammatory. So I'll give you some examples, like gluten and dairy and sometimes alcohol, which I know for many people is very triggering, but really examining your own relationship to see vis-a-vis how you can integrate fasting. So perimenopausal women are also fasting around their menstrual cycle, but they have the added caveat of leaning into that lifestyle piece. And then women who've gone 12 months without a menstrual cycle, so menopausal women, as I said, average age is 51. Then we're really looking at you have to manage the stress and you have to sleep and you've got to do the anti-inflammatory nutrition, not as much hormonal flux. So I think par- I think menopausal women and men have the easiest time with fasting because their hormones are not nearly as fluctuating as they are throughout a normal menstrual cycle. And the other thing I would add is, you know, when I have very thin, lean, athletic women, maybe 35 and under, I always say, you know, maybe they just fast a couple days a week. Maybe they fast twice a week. So I think it's always in the context of who you are as an individual, fasting for your cycle, and then understanding that lifestyle piece is still super important. And one thing I want to add is that our menstrual cycle is a benchmark of our health. So if you start fasting and your menstrual cycle, maybe it's a little a little longer cycle, a little shorter cycle. I'm not worried about that. But if your period goes away, that's a sign it may be too much stress for your body. And, and sometimes when women reach out to me on social media, I have to say, take a break. It's okay. Maybe you just do 12 hours of digestive rest. There's no shame in that. But really understanding that I think of that as another vital sign. Our menstrual cycle is a vital sign. Oh my God, there was so much amazing things. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I really want to start taking those bit by bit because that was so damn fire. And like I said, 
for you to be able to give us that knowledge and be able to lay out, okay, how am I going to show up in the next 30 days? You've literally just broken it down on the times that are going to benefit this and the times it's not going to benefit. Um, that's really useful from, from en- for anyone to be able to follow. I think also identifying the fact that um, menopausal women are actually have it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have said menopausal women and men. Um, in your book, you explain it's because of our estrogen isn't as dominant. Is that correct? Well, it's probably more that we don't have as much fluctuation between estrogen and progesterone. Now, mm-hmm. Some women go into perimenopause and menopause and they're on hormone replacement therapy. Some women do not. I do find, and I was recently reading a bit of research talking to Dr. Gabrielle Line about this, that as women are transitioning to menopause and we have higher uh, FSH, so it's follicular stimulating hormone and low estrogen. So that's what happens over time, you know, heading into menopause, less estrogen, less progesterone, less testosterone we start getting changes in body composition. Mm. And the body composition changes are that we have we put on more adipose tissue, we have less mean muscle mass. It becomes even more important for these women to be getting enough protein in their diets. And so it, it really kind of reinforces the fact that if you're fasting, can you get enough protein in your fast in your feeding window? And this is something I really, really emphasize on social media. One meal a day as a sustainable strategy is very hard for people to get their protein intake. And so really helping people understand that in a menopausal state, women can have high levels of estrogen relative to low levels of blood estrogen because of our exposure to estrogen mimicking chemicals in Mm -hmm. our environment, our personal care products and our food. Mm -hmm. So as an example, like if you're slathering yourself with uh, parabens and phthalates and and these estrogen mimicking chemicals, you can have high estrogen and even be in menopause. So it's kind of a sticky wicket, meaning testing can help guide. But I always say to people, like we want to go into that menopausal mindset, understanding that we have our unique things that we have to do a little bit differently than younger women. The kind of the hallmark of the beginning of perimenopause, which is that 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, is that our ovaries stop producing as much progesterone. We start going into this ovarian failure. And it is a byproduct. We are born with a finite amount of eggs, whereas men make sperm every three days. Women, what we have is what we have. And so as we are making this transition, less progesterone, the adrenals are like, okay, we can pick up the slack, but they're an emergency backup system. They're not meant to be used chronically and habitually. So one of the things that I start to see with women is with this lower progesterone levels, they don't sleep, Mm -hmm. they have more anxiety, they have more depression, and what ends up happening, they go to their well-meaning practitioner, and what are they prescribed? Antidepressants, anti-anxiety agents, which what they really need is some progesterone. And it could just be that they have a little bit of progesterone before their menstrual cycle. Um, Certainly menopausal women benefit from oral, oral progesterone. But I think from that context, it's helpful for people to understand, like as these changes are happening, we st- they start showing up differently. It's like, you just assume, oh, I'm in my early 40s, my sleep is terrible. Well, it's because your ovaries are like, I'm tired, I've run a marathon, I'm ready to like hang up the towel. Um, and, and understanding that what's changing with us in terms of our physiology helps us understand like, how does my body need to be better supported? God, I, I think you even wrote in your book that it's something like 15 pounds, like if you keep your diet exactly the same, women who are like in their early 20s all the way to their 50s were put on 15 pounds by not changing the damn yeah. bit. And it, a lot of it is this loss of skeletal muscle. Mm. So really understanding that north of 40, sarcopenia is not an if but when. What is it? Sarcopenia is muscle loss with aging. Mm. It's not a question of if but when it will happen. Like I remember in my early 40s, I was suddenly less hungry and I kept saying, what's wrong with me? 
I exercise, I eat really well. And I think for a lot of people, they don't understand that as you're losing muscle, you're losing metabolic flexibility, you're losing insulin sensitivity. And for everyone who's watching and saying, what does that mean? You get more prone to being insulin resistant. If you become insulin resistant, you're gonna watch your blood pressure go up, your waistline changes, body composition changes. And so not enough practitioners are talking about this. And if you understand that you want to maintain lean muscle throughout your lifetime, that's going to help you stay metabolically healthy. And I think if more women understood, they would stop with the chronic cardio and they would pick up some weights. Mm -hmm. And so that's my hope and my intention that people don't feel like overwhelmed and stressed. They just understand you can navigate these years and not end up gaining 15 or 20 pounds being a statistic, but you have to change your lifestyle. And that's part of it. Yeah, what's the difference between uh, brown fat and white fat? Because this was so, like, the more I understand, mm -hmm. the more I'm able to really make decisions in that moment of um, what's good for me, what's not good for me, what's going to, and when I say good, I, I think of it as being what's going to help my life be longer and healthier. That's a great question. So white adipose tissue is the fat that we think about, like fat underneath, whether it's subcutaneous or visceral, meaning subcutaneous is the fat that, like, we can grab. Mm -hmm. Visceral's around our organs, and that's bad. But what's really cool, brown fat is metabolically active. So it has the ability when you are in a fasted state, you can actually metabolically change white adipose tissue to brown fat. And the beijing process is when you have more mitochondria, mitochondria with powerhouses of our cells, it's a much more metabolically active tissue. And so it can actually help burn fat. And so I always explain like we want to do things that can make that tissue transition. They call it beijing, going from white to beige, to brown, because it's mm -hmm. metabolically active and not just the fat that we think about that we don't like. Mm -hmm. And metabolically active tissue is going to function differently than typical adipose tissue or fat tissue, which is inflammatory. It's actually a very sophisticated endocrine organ, meaning we used to think of fat as fat. Fat is far more sophisticated than that. Mm. Yeah. And of course, we used to think if you eat fat, you get fat. Yes, I you remember used to those tell days? our patients. Well, and it's <laughs> funny, I uh, went to college in the 90s and I remember my roommate and I had, uh, I don't know if you remember snack wells, they may not have yes, had Yes, of okay. course. Okay, so they tasted awful mm -hmm. and tasted terrible. And what did we have? Cabinets and cabinets of cookies and crackers and like terrible non-fat cheese and things like that. And so how many of my patients did I encourage them to uh, buy seed oils? I told them not to eat butter, to avoid animal fat. And we know that Fat, healthy fat, not seed oils, which are things like soybean and canola and sunflower and safflower, are actually beneficial for our hormones. I watched so many of my cardiology patients on high-dose statin therapy that had vascular disease and were sick that we would just keep increasing their medications and they, they would stop having libido. They would, uh, you know, they weren't creating healthy hormones. They had problems with their joints. They had so many issues. They were having cognitive problems because, you know, fat is important in the brain. It's fat, fat throughout our body is important for many different things. You know, vitamin D synthesis, you know, fat soluble vitamins. Mm -hmm. And so I cringe every time I think or reflect back on the 1990s and even what I used to teach my patients. Now I know better, but there was definitely a time where I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I? I mean, we didn't know. We, we were following what was evidence-based. Yeah. Um, and I still hear people who are paranoid to eat fat. Like my mother's whole generation, paranoid to eat fat. Yeah, mine paranoid. too. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. 
And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you anymore. And that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doctor that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc dot com slash lisa and download the zocdoc app for absolutely free then find and book a top rated doctor today that's zocdoc z-o-c-d-o-c dot com slash lisa zocdoc.com slash lisa and what i love that you just said is we, we know, we only know what we know, right? So when you think about technology is evolving, so technology is now actually, so let's take the microbiome, mm-hmm. right? Now there's more technology that can identify the different microbes mm-hmm. in your gut. But like seven years ago, when I had massive gut issues, everyone was like, I don't know what's wrong. You've got IBS. And it's like, IBS is just this thing to tell me that I've got an upset gut. It's like, it's not actually telling me what is wrong. Yeah. So What I love about what we're doing right now is really unveiling all the truths behind this beautiful thing that could potentially really help us when we feel lost, when we feel over fatigued, when we don't feel like we have the energy. I know how much weight loss does really tie to certain people's Mm self-esteem. And when you feel like that there's nowhere to go, it's helpless or hopeless, right? And um, that can be paralyzing in and of itself. And so for me, it's always about empowering women to Mm -hmm. give them the knowledge that then they can make the decisions themselves. So as we start to talk about all of this and as we start to talk about hormones, um, I think it's really important to really emphasize to me the beautiful things that and how fasting can really help hormones, inflammation and things like that. So if you could don't mind actually explaining the inflammation part in case people don't really understand, like the inflammation was changed my life Mm -hmm. through fasting. It's interesting because inflammation is not all bad. You know, there's a lot of things that are popular in the lay, you know, the lay public or popular in the media. And I always say acute inflammation is good. You fall and you stub your toe, you get a cut. You want acute inflammation because it's going to send specific um, uh, microbes and, and things that are going to help you heal and are help going to help quiet the inflammation. It, it's almost like an SOS. The body's sending out an SOS the acute phase inflammation is a good thing. It's chronic inflammation that happens over time. And that can be exacerbated by many things. It can be the food choices we have. It can be our stress level. It can be the quality of our gut microbiome. You know, it's almost like if you throw gasoline on a fire. Mm-hmm. You know, many things that we're doing in our day-to-day lives are actually exacerbating, you know, drug use, alcohol use. There's a lot of different things that can exacerbate that. But when I think about how fasting can be so impactful for quieting inflammation in the gut microbiome as an example, it's giving your body time to 
upregulate the autophagy, so this waste and recycling process, but it's also digestive rest. Our small intestine is one cell layer thick. Over time, so when you were talking about IBS, Mm. IBS is really related to food sensitivities. So, you know, you start to think about you get one round of antibiotics or you get weeks of antibiotics. And what happens is that one cell layer, those, those tight junctions open up. And so you're eating food and the food is going up into the, so little food particles are being, um, absorbed into the bloodstream. And so you start this inflammatory response because your body's like, this doesn't belong. What's going on? So in a lot of different instances, when you are in, you are in a less fed state or in an unfed state, it gives your body time to go in and help repair Mm -hmm. what's going on in the digestive system. If you fast long enough, as an example, you can actually get some stem cell activation, which we know is very, very important with healing the body. Now, for people that are just fasting starting at 12, 14, 16, 18 hours, you still have benefits. Not as many as if you did a long fast, but it's a really good starting point. And what we're looking to do is help quiet the chronic inflammation. And, you know, to think about inflammation as inflammaging. So it's almost like you turn up, you know, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire, just really understanding that cumulatively, all the choices we make can, can actually exacerbate that inflammation. I'll give you another example. For many people, going off of gluten, as an example, can be very anti-inflammatory. When I talk about anti-inflammatory diets, it's really leaning into what are the most anti-inflammatory foods? What are the most inflammatory foods? And understanding that incorporating the anti-inflammatory foods, like as an example, curcumin and turmeric, a lot of the polyphenols that we get in fruits and vegetables, um, certainly you know, the carnivore diet for many people is very anti-inflammatory. So for each one of us, it's figuring out what we need to eliminate and what we need to add. So I always say, take one thing away and assess and see how things go. But I do find that fasting in particular is very powerful for gut health as well as inflammatory reduction. All right, we're going to go deep now because <laughs> I need to make this much, uh, bold of a statement. Intermittent fasting, I think, is probably one of the biggest factors that saved my gut when I could barely stand up for more than five minutes at a time. I didn't realize it was only one cell thick yeah, or whatever. Small it's intestine. like, what? Yeah. Well, and it explains how easily it can get damaged. Oh my God, it totally explains it. So now I think I spent five years with antibiotic abuse is what I call it, where I was taking it three to four to five times a year continuously. And so I was waking up, I had the worst gut, I had brain fog all the time. I was like, it feels like I've just drunk alcohol. I feel hung over. And all I had was a chocolate cake, right? Not realizing that I had leaky gut, I'm Mm -hmm. eating things with dairy, I'm eating things with gluten, and now I'm, but I literally would wake up the next day and be like, does everyone feel like this? And I just assumed going back to, it's just normal. Mm -hmm. I thought, it's just me. Yeah. It's just how I am. Not realizing exactly what you just broke down. And then as I personally started to then do intermittent fasting, it gave my gut time to relax. Mm -hmm. It gave my gut time to, um, to, you know, de-stress itself, if you will. And we are in this weird freaking world, girl, and I'm sure you're seeing it. So many women are having chronic gut issues. Mm-hmm. Chronic gut issues. And I spent, I'm not, you know, I'm on my seven-year journey now. I started off for a whole year. I could barely stand up for longer than five minutes at a time. My hair was falling out. There's actually a reason part of my hairstyle became this way because my hair started to really thin out. My nails got brittle, um, all because I had leaky gut along with a parasite, along with a candida, SIBO, and it all just kept escalating. 
Well, and it's also the understanding that because you had leaky gut, you know, you probably had low hydrochloric acid in your stomach, which is a first line of defense, which made you susceptible to the candida, the parasite. Oh, girl, we could talk about parasites. Um, SIBO, all those things. Yeah, it just, it's almost like a domino effect. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, they're like, oh, no, this could never happen. I remind people that cumulatively over time, we are we are all given far too many antibiotics. I mean, there are time, there's a time and a place, right? Like I was in a hospital in 2019 and I needed the antifungals and the antibiotics. Otherwise, I would have ended up with a different outcome. Mm-hmm. But I think it takes years. Like one round of antibiotics, it can take a long time. Like anywhere from, I think the research that I read most recently, 12 to 18 months for one round. So Whoa. I was on six weeks. I was six weeks of antibiotics and antifungals. So my body, my gut was just decimated. And I'm sure I can totally appreciate what you're saying because I think that's the norm. We think it's normal. We just take antibiotics anytime we need them because we don't fully appreciate full informed consent would be the practitioner saying, oh, by the way, you might develop subsequent to this, you may develop small intestinal hyperpermeability, aka leaky gut. Mm -hmm. And if we knew that, if we could say that to our patients and say, okay, these are the things I need you to do. I want you to add this, you know, this supplement that's going to help with, um, you know, getting bacterial diversity back. Because unfortunately with antibiotics, um, and your listeners may know this, that it kills off beneficial bacteria and the bad bacteria. And that's the problem is that we lose this microbial diversity. And I really fervently do believe it takes years, years and years and years to get back. So you've had a seven-year journey. Mm -hmm. I've had a three-year journey. And I'm very transparent. I tell people it's the domino effect. It's not just one thing. It's one thing kind of creates the perfect storm for this constellation of symptoms that people experience. Goddamn. So what supplements should we be taking when we're taking antibiotics? I typically suggest a beneficial yeast. So people always say, what does that mean? Um, Sac Bilardi. And so it's something that you can generally find, like most good quality supplement brands will have Sac Bilardi. You take it away from antibiotics. And then I think it's really working diligently to um, you know, help seal that gut. So depending on who you're working with, there are products, like there's a product by um, Orthomolecular called SBI Protect, and it's IgG. So it's giving your body, um, you know, L-glutamine is probably a more accessible like term. People are like, okay, maybe I've heard of that. But these kinds of things can be very helpful for repairing, going back in to help repair those high junctions that have opened up. It's mm. not a question, but if, when, when you're antibiotics, it will happen. And let me be clear, sometimes you really do genuinely need the antibiotics, but for many of us, there it's like it's you get a couple UTIs, maybe you get a, you know, maybe you get a cold or you, that turns into bronchitis, like you're unknowingly not realizing it's this cumulative downward effect of being on antibiotics, you know, over time. Yeah. Oh God, honestly, like that, if I had known, then at least I would have felt like, oh, I can keep doing this when there are times I really need to take the antibiotics. But the amount of women now that talk to me Mm -hmm. about gut and health issues is insane. And I think that, um, A, it's important to discuss what we can do about it. And then the other side of it really is to acknowledge that a lot of us do suffer from it and that Mm -hmm. it's not just the physical thing, it becomes a mental thing. For me, I lost my confidence. I felt shame around it. I felt embarrassment around it. I wrote a story in my book where I am very openly talk about one of the most embarrassing times of my life and it was my gut was in such disarray I go out on this beautiful romantic date with my husband. It's our anniversary. He takes me to one of the nicest hotels, Wilshire, the Wilshire Hotel mm-hmm. in Beverly Hills. We get the perfect table and my gut is just in complete disarray. Mm. And I, I don't know what to do. I'm in public and I'm like, I just have to run to the restroom. 
and I get up to run to the restroom and I don't make it. Oh. Now, it's such an embarrassing story. I was heartbroken in tears in the car on the way home because I just, of course, just left the restaurant. I was in tears. And I said to my husband, I can never tell anyone this story. I'm so embarrassed. Now, in that moment, I stopped and I was like, oh, my God, this is what we all do. We all hide and feel embarrassment over a story because we feel like it means something about us. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about gut health. Yeah. Now imagine I'm hiding the story, which now kind of lessens the true impact that gut health really does and how it impacts us as women. Um, and so now I'm actually doing a disservice to other women in not talking about this. And so I made it a point to write it in my book. And this is actually the first time I think I've really said it out loud in an interview. Wow. So thank you for giving me space. Yeah. Um, but the emotional turmoil it took me through. And that was why I wanted to bring it up. Because if we can't, if we're unable to give people the tools how many more women are going to feel embarrassed and shamed like me that then have a knock-on effect on their self-esteem on whether they ask for that pay rise, right, Mm -hmm. when they go for that job or they talk to their husband or their partner because they're no longer happy. All of this takes confidence to really step up. If you don't feel good about yourself, you're not doing any of that. No, and it's interesting because there's a very powerful relationship. So we call the gut the enteric brain, so second brain, understanding that a healthy gut begets a healthy brain. And so if the bulk of our immunity is in our gut and the bulk of our neurotransmitters are made in our gut, is it any wonder you were feeling so badly mm-hmm. and has everything to do with the fact that your gut was really in a, a deconditioned state? It really needed to be like revitalized. And I'm sorry that you had that experience. I think most, if not all of us have had experiences. And I think it's so important to share that because it makes us more real, like we're a real person. Like I've had this embarrassing situation happen um, you know, thankfully, you know, now you're in a position where your, your gut is, is more optimized and you're living a, you know, healthier uh, lifestyle. But I think it's, it also speaks to the fact like this could be anybody. Yeah. It's, it's like it, irrespective of where you live and, you know, mm-hmm. what you're doing for a living. I mean, it can happen to anyone. It's cumulative net impact. It's like the gut insult one after another. Mm-hmm. And it just makes you so much more susceptible, so much more susceptible. I'm so glad that you said that. And that really was the point, right? In that, look, we all can have this situation. And if we all hide from it, we're not helping each other. Mm -hmm. And so how do we now start to bring this conversation out in the open to talk about the real, like the real shit, right? The real things, pun intended or not intended, (laughs) but like how do we actually talk about it so that we can start helping other younger girls, that we can start helping each other? Because now I'm thinking, wow, man, if I, the amount of women that have come up to me, by the way, and be like, it's happened to me too. Yeah. Oh, totally. And now I'm like, why happened are you whispering? Yeah. Oh, totally happened thank to me. you. Totally happened to me. So I, so in my twenties, I had a, an abusive relationship and I remember, uh, you know, my mom, my parents took me for this big workup cause they were like, what's wrong with her. And I remember, uh, you know, getting rid of said person was very therapeutic, but the symptoms of like digestive distress lasted for like a year. And I remember going out with a new boyfriend who was a wonderful guy and we had gone out, and, and I've since learned I can't eat foods like this, but we had gone to this Cajun restaurant, I had really spicy food and a lot of dairy. And I was in the middle, uh, I've never told this story publicly, I was in the middle of 95 in Washington, D.C., ran down an embankment to have this episode where I was like vomiting, having diarrhea, and it was like the most embarrassing thing ever. But now I've, I've completely outed myself. So yeah, we have to talk about these things to Thank destigmatize you. it. Yeah. 
and then try and fix it because like that's the goal right now and you know not to kind of be a dead horse but it really is that the moment that we feel embarrassed and shame about one thing it starts to bleed into every area and it has been weirdly empowering a writing it out like even just empowering and now even saying it is the first time like I'm a little uncomfortable saying this out loud but at the same time I kind of feel empowered and now the fact that you told me your story now I feel really great about myself because I was the one that gave this catalyst to now you being open like it really does then become this thing of like oh if all of us women can just do this and go, and how do we help each other to actually fix it? Now, hopefully, we're not finding the numbers going up. We're actually mm. finding the numbers going down. So now in saying all of that, girl, let's actually talk about fasting mm-hmm. and intermittent fasting and long-term fasting and the benefits of both. Because again, this is literally what changed my life. But now to get started, this person, let's say your average yep. American person that eats an average diet that has, let's say, what, three meals with three snacks. Um, where do I start to primp myself for getting on the fast, and then how do we actually start fasting? Okay, number one is you stop snacking. Like rip the Band-Aid off because that will force you to reallocate your macros. So macros are protein, fat, and carbs. And in order to go four to five hours between a meal, you have to stop snacking. You're going to have more protein, less carbohydrates, and certainly the quality of carbs are important. Healthy fats if needed. So if you're having a ribeye, you don't need to add more fats. And understanding that you are going to be okay going four to five hours in between. So that's a starting point. No snacking. Start adjusting those macros. And I think most of us are grossly under eating protein. I find most women are eating 40 to 50 a day total, Mm -hmm. really aiming for 100 grams a day. So it may take a bit of time to go from 40 to 50 to 100, but aiming for more protein because protein is the most satiating macronutrient. is super important especially for women north of 35, to maintain your muscle mass, you have to hit enough protein. I always say, you know, looking at a pound is 16 ounces. So eight ounces of steak, eight ounces of chicken, like that's going to get you closer to that metric. Um, If you want to track your macros, Chronometer is a great app. It's free. I have no affiliation with them, but that's a great option because it breaks down micronutrients as well as macros. So if you want to get nerdy and know how much potassium and sodium are in things, that's a good way to go. So really understanding that, you know, it'll take a bit of time. Like an egg is six grams of protein. So what do you want your omelet to be? You want Mm -hmm. your omelet to be three to four at least, you know, at least so that you're getting a decent amount of protein bolus with each meal. Um, And then kind of transitioning to when I talk about carbs, I'm not anti-carb. If you're metabolically healthy, insulin sensitive, not insulin resistant, then carbohydrates are less of an issue for you. But given most Americans, you know, there was a 2018 UNC Chapel Hill study that it was 88.2% of Americans at that time, pre-pandemic, were not metabolically healthy. 88.2? Yeah. So important for people to understand context. If you are overweight, obese, insulin resistant, you have to curtail your carbs. And that means getting carbs from whole food sources, berries, non-leafy, you know, non, non-starchy vegetables. Um, if you're getting it from like sweet potato and root vegetables, that's very different than getting it from bread and pasta and rice. And it's important for people to understand I'm not anti-carb, but like, let's get real. We have to be honest with ourselves mm-hmm. and examine our relationship with carbohydrates and then again, the fats, depending on what is in the protein. So ribeye, you don't need more fats. Have a piece of salmon, you don't need more fats. It's not five avocados a day. That's where people get in trouble. Avocados are delicious, but you don't want to be eating copious amounts of them. And then the next lever is really looking at not eating from dinner to breakfast. Now, people freak out. They're like, that means no snacking after dinner. That means no alcohol. That means no sweets. Yes, you can do it. 
Um, you go from dinner to breakfast because for many people, they are unknowingly fasting 13 or 14 hours all on their own. And so that's the next kind of hurdle to get over. And that's that's the stepwise progression that I found. And it may take people going from snacking. It may take them weeks to go to getting comfortable with allocating how much protein they need on their plate before they even consider going from dinner to breakfast. But that's a pretty good stepwise approach that people can utilize that can help them kind of think about, okay, once I master not snacking, then the next thing is this, then the next thing is this. What's the biggest thing that people have with the mastering of not snacking? Because I can also see a world where people just like, but I'm starving. So how do you take people through in that moment where they're like, all right, I've just listened to this episode, but God damn, my tummy's telling me <laughs> if I just have this, I'll feel better. In fact, this is exactly what happened with me and my husband. He wanted to cut out sugar. And so he told me, babe, I really want to show up. I've done read all this stuff about, you know, cognitive behavior. And so, you know, I really do want six pack abs, right? He okay. was just honest. He's like, I want six pack yep. abs and I want to have mental clarity. So I'm going to cut out sugar. And I was like, great. Three days in, he's literally like, I'm just going to grab a cookie. And I was like, but babe, I was trying to like support him, right? And he's like, as if I was food shaming him, he was like, but I know if I have this cookie, my headache will go away. You want me to stay with a headache? Right now, this was definitely back when we first met before Mm -hmm. he had a growth mindset. But that's the thing that I can assume people are going to say. I have a headache. I Who can snack? I'm starving. I can't concentrate. And what I would love is for you to say a few things, maybe, that when they're in that moment to recognize it's just temporary. Yeah. Well, it, it's that. And it's also part of what I encourage patients to think about is, what did you eat at your last meal? Because it's reinforcing you didn't eat enough protein, mm. probably, because you shouldn't be hungry. It's also checking in, like, are you stressed? Where are you in your menstrual cycle? Um, are you feeling sad? Like, are you looking for that snack? Cause you're not really hungry. It's more of like an emotional need that you're trying to meet. And the other thing is if you're really that hungry, then say, okay, um, today I only ate six ounces of protein. So in my next meal, I'm going to eat more. And right now I'm going to have a piece of beef jerky. Maybe I have a piece of cheese. Maybe I have a piece of fruit with that. And I'm going to just give myself that snack. But it's with the understanding that it's information. Mm. You're getting information. What are you going to do with the information? And so I think that's important, like that realization to put those things together to say, okay, what am I going to do differently next time? And is that why? Because the next question I was going to ask, but I think you just answered it, is some people may hear something and be like, okay, if I can't snack after my dinner, I'm just going to have my snack for my dinner. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't recommend that because, you know, if you're feeling like one thing that's important to really emphasize is that fasting is not designed to make you miserable. So if you are miserable, we need to examine what's going on. So for some people, they, and this is not pejorative, it's just like after working with thousands and thousands of people, um, we eat for different reasons. Sometimes we eat for hunger, like true intrinsic physical hunger. Sometimes we eat because we don't want to deal with feelings. And being able to differentiate, I think, is very important because... Um, I, I'm no different than anyone else. Like if I'm stressed, I'm going to be thinking about that dark chocolate. I'm like, dang, I need my dark chocolate. That's like my one vice. I'm like, I want my dark chocolate, but I have to examine, do I really want the chocolate or is it because I don't want to deal with the fact that I'm feeling stressed and overwhelmed because I've got this deadline looming. I have slides I have to get done. I've got this trip coming up or I just had an argument with my teenagers, which lately seems to happen more often than not. <laughs> so it's really examining like what's going on deep down to mitigate that desire And there's nothing wrong with deciding that you want to allocate a time during your week where you want to have dessert or you want to have a glass of wine or you want to have something savory. That is totally okay. Fasting is designed to be flexible. 
But as you are kind of transitioning into a fasting lifestyle, understanding you're going to have a day, well, you can have a day where you're like, I don't want to fast today. And mm-hmm. that is okay. It's not about rigidity. And I think that's very important because I think people can be rigidly dogmatic and that is detracting attention from the higher purpose. Mm. Like, why are we fasting? Like, really, what's your why? Like, reflecting back on that when you're having, you know, having a day where I want that cookie. Like, what's going on for you? You know, really kind of stepping into what is going on internally that is mitigating that behavior and examining that. Like, I'm very much of the belief system of, you know, actions and feelings. Like, they can come together, but it's understanding that interrelationship. Like, what else is going on that's mitigating this desire to do something that's outside my norm? I love having the why. That's a genius idea. And and you also talk about making sure that you have your why and then putting a schedule together. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to me about that and why it's important and then how we actually start to do that. Well, I, I mean, I think when we're when we're having our why, I think irrespective of whether it's fasting, whether you have a new lifestyle change, whether you're making a huge lifestyle change, like something substantive, a move, a divorce, et cetera, being very clear about the, the, the area of focus. Like for me personally, I'll just give myself as an example. Please. I always say my purpose is very clear. Like ultimately, my highest priority is my family and that is in my nuclear family. So my husband and my boys, like that is always the purpose. However, I always think about decisions in terms of, does this, does this meet my higher purpose? Like, is this feeding an ego? Is this feeding, like, am I, am I meeting, like, am I, am I doing the things within my business that are pushing me forward to make sure I can help provide for my higher purpose or contribute to the higher purpose, but not detract from that? And so when it comes to lifestyle changes, I think about it very similarly. If your why is, my mother had diabetes. My father had diabetes. I want to ensure I never develop diabetes. And fasting is but one tool that is going to help move me closer to not having diabetes. Then you have to think about that. And I, I always say to, to patients, write it down. I don't care if you keep it in your phone, you keep it on your desk, you write it on your computer and you put it on a post-it note. However it is, you need that visual representation of what your why is because you're going to have human nature. We're going to have times where we are going to struggle. We're going to have times when it's hard to persevere. It is going, you're going to have times that is human nature. We are not robots. We would like to believe we are, <laughs> but we are not. And so when we're working towards the why, it's always something that's tangible, attainable, and something that you can reflect on to help reinforce good habits. Ah, uh, it's so beautiful. You know, thinking through for me, the mission of impacting women, and if I'm not cognitively clear, if I can't show up for interviews, if I don't have that, you know, the energy to do it, then I'm not in line with my mission. And so that becomes like the my why of my mission and my life really does then become the why of why I need to make sure that I'm taking care of my health. That intermittent fasting is definitely something that's really helped me. So that any time that I feel like who cares right like we all get lazy like you even said it's like okay I give myself grace on that day but then I remind myself the next day and I absolutely am able to get back because the why is so damn strong um I absolutely freaking love that yeah I think it's important I I think too too frequently we as women and I'm a reform people pleaser um and actually I was on a podcast earlier today and and the podcast host said you know why what do you think that stemmed from and I was like, ooh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. And I think we as women, we're conditioned to serve everyone else's needs in many ways, whether that's cultural, whether mm-hmm. that's expectations set up by family or choices that we make. And so I encourage women to articulate what their needs are. You know, are your needs being met? 
So I see so many women that by the time they're 40 years old, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I haven't been taking care of me for my whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. And they feel guilty. They feel bad. They f and I'm like, no, no, no. Getting up early to go to the gym, whether that's what you choose to do, or you're eating less frequently, or maybe your, your food, your feeding window ends earlier than when your kids eat. Like I have teenagers, they eat later than I do. I sit down with them, but they understand like mom eats by X number, you know, I eat by five o'clock or six o'clock at night. I can't eat at nine, but then my sleep's messed up. So really understanding how that all kind of interplays with one another. And do you find that because the benefits are so good for you, you have the confidence to tell people that? Because as you're talking, I was like, I'm the same now. It doesn't matter who asked me. Mm -hmm. If they asked me out for dinner at seven, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to eat or we can eat at five. It's like I give them the option. Once upon a time, I would have absolutely been insecure mm -hmm. to tell people. I would have just said yes. I would have dealt with the stomach issues. I would have eaten at 10 p.m. because I was a people pleaser, mm -hmm. because I didn't want to be fussy, because I didn't want to, like, you know, uh, rattle the cage of the situation or dinner. Like, five people said yes, and then here I am. And so there's a lot of confidence that comes with telling the people around you, hey, I'm fasting. This is what, you know, and so, mm -hmm. it, you know, I'm not going to be able to eat dinner with you. Um, do you think that that comes from really feeling the benefits first and then being able to then say it? Definitely. And I think the gift, if we want to call it a gift of the pandemic, was that I had a whole year with my nuclear family and it was just us. Mm -hmm. And I said to my husband, you know, kids going, you know, they're, they're in school virtually. We're home all the time. And I just said, I finally realized like my body does best when I close my feeding window earlier and I'm no longer going to apologize. Like my, my family members that make fun of me, they're like, you're like an elderly person. You know, you want to go to dinner at five o'clock. And I said, you know what? I feel better. Mm -hmm. I feel better. And I'm doing what's best for me. Like on occasion, when we have family events and I have to suck it up. I will do that, but I'll eat a really small meal. I'll, I'll do it to be present, but they know like I don't drink alcohol. I'm not going to eat the, you know, junky dessert. I'm not going to eat a big bolus of food at nine o'clock at night because my sleep is too important. Mm. And so I, I think on a lot of levels, yes, I'm very confident. But I also explain to people, this is what works for me. In the context of what works for you, if it overlaps, that's great. If not, I will come and I'd love to have you, you know, if you want to eat dinner and you want to have a glass of wine, I will sit with you and I will enjoy talking to you. But I'm not going to compromise what works best for me in terms of my health based on, you know, late night dining or based on an alcohol of uh, an evening of drinking too much alcohol. Or um, I always say like dark chocolate's my, my one big vice that I love. Mm -hmm. But it's like, even then it's like, you know, sometimes I have to say to myself, is this serving my higher purpose? Is it going to keep me up later? Because it's, I'm sensitive to caffeine, mm -hmm. but it's all good. And I find that finding people that do want to do that as well, like eat earlier. Um, so when we talk, as we're talking about, you know, intermittent fasting, you mentioned Gabrielle Lyon before, mm -hmm. like she's a good homie of mine. And we were all trying to arrange to go out for dinner yeah. with her and Roxy and Eve Torres. And they're all, we're all the same. Yeah. And so literally I'm like, well, guys, can we make fun? And they're like, oh yeah, well, we don't want to do later. And so all of yeah. a sudden, all of us are like, well, we can't do later. So if we can't make this date work at five o'clock, we'll move the, t the entire yeah. date. And so finding people it, that you can be around to encourage you and help you, because once you start to feel those health benefits, having other people help you continue mm -hmm. is going to be super important. Absolutely. Um, and I think, it, I think for a lot of people, there's shame within their family and friend circle about their, whether it's dietary choices, things they eliminate, whether it's fasting, whether it's not drinking or eating certain things. And so I've just come to just, I'm, I'm like Teflon. 
I'm like, I don't care what my family members think. Mm. I mean, I care what my kids and my husband think, but beyond that, I'm like, I'm the weird aunt or I'm the weird. I mean, it's like the labeling. And I'm like, that's your, that's your pejorative statement. Mm. Like if you came to me and said, I need to eat by five o'clock, I'd be like, fine. Yeah. That's, you know, but I agree with you. It's important to be surrounded by people that are like-minded. Saying to people that you're fasting or intermittent fasting or long-term fasting, like I remember when my husband first told me like, oh, I'm just not going to eat for five days. <laughs> um, he triggered me. So I grew up with a mum that was borderline anorexic. And so I've had a bad relationship with food growing up, which is why I ended up taking antibiotics because mm -hmm. I was getting sick a lot because I was cutting out fat. It's a whole thing, right? Yep. So I end up having all these issues. And so as I start to get back on track of getting my health back, I realized I'd done it to myself because mm -hmm. I had a poor relationship with food. I don't beat myself up, but I acknowledge it. And so my husband comes up and he's like, oh my God, yeah, this doctor said, and I'm gonna do the five day. And I was like, but that's starving yourself. And what I didn't realize is, yeah, he triggered me. And so how do you talk about um, when people either get triggered by it, how do we navigate that? Because going back to just the amount of beautiful benefits that fasting can have on somebody, if they're getting triggered, then we've missed an opportunity for them to actually adopt, potentially adopt it and see if it works for them. Oh yeah, my easiest way of addressing that is to eat less often. Cause that's benign. People are like, oh, oh, I can do that, eat less often. And it's determining what does that look like in your life? What does that show up as in your life? And so I always acknowledge when people get triggered if I say something, and I, I, I definitely go about ensuring that I communicate in a very thoughtful way, thoughtful, sensitive way. Um, I, I just acknowledge, okay, that might be an area of work that someone needs to go on. But certainly I have a, I have a coach in one of my programs who um, healed her disordered relationship with food by fasting. And so I'll have women that will come after me and they're like, you know, your, your content is triggering, you're, you're potentiating eating disorders. And I'm like, whoa, time out, wait a second. No, you're mirroring your own you know, concerns on me. That has nothing to do with the messaging. So I do think that we oftentimes, if we feel triggered by something, it's, it's inner work that it's almost like a wound, like mm -hmm. it's a trauma that we have to kind of work on. Um, I do find for a lot of people, it's really examining like, what is it about fasting or about that word that is bothersome for you? If saying eating less often is more comfortable, then just use that phrase. I mean, that's usually how I define it. Mm. I'm like, that's really what we're speaking to. Sometimes people hear the word fast and they think that means starvation. So I have to differentiate like very different, very different. And even looking at the research, like starvation is very different than fasting, whether it's prolonged or intermittent. So I think on a lot of different levels, if people can view it as eating less often, it becomes a little less offensive. Do you mind breaking down then how you see the difference between starving and fasting? Starving is not eating. Intermittent fasting is choosing to eat within a specific time frame or choosing not to eat between a specific time frame. To me, it is much more deliberate. You know, I've certainly had plenty of girlfriends who are anorexic and that is very, very different. Mm -hmm. I always tell people, I still eat. I just don't eat between, I mean, let's arbitrarily say, I don't eat between six and nine o'clock in the morning. So there's always that 15 hour span of time when I choose not to eat. Could I eat? Sure. So but you have the same amount of food, you just reduce the time that you have it in versus anorexia or starvation where they eliminate the calories basically altogether yeah, they and they try and reduce as much yeah. as possible. Yeah, so they just don't eat at all. And it, it's interesting, during my training, I actually, my psych rotation was at an eating disorder hospital that was in the Baltimore area. And it gave me very much a bird's eye view of what is really going on, you know, emotionally, intellectually for a lot of these women 
And so for me, that's always stayed with me. Like I'm probably very conscientious about just being sensitive to that. I'm like, that is a real entity. If you are choosing not to eat, that is a real issue versus intermittent fasting. It's a choice. Now, do I see people on social media that I suspect have an eating disorder and they hide their eating disorder in intermittent fasting? Yes, I see plenty of that. So how do we start to break apart whether we're really doing it because, oh my God, we see the benefits and it's really making me feel better or I can actually now get away with it without having to say that I've got an eating disorder. And the reason why I ask is because I don't know if some people are even aware of it. Because even going to myself, I've got an addictive personality. I know that about myself. So just when I started to do the fasting, I had a fasting app mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, I did 16 today. Let's go 17 tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I did 17. Let's go 18. Yeah. And what I realized was I stopped listening to my body. I started to just play the game of the numbers and then challenge myself because I do find pleasure in the challenge. But I have just been sick for seven mm-hmm. years and seen where that got me and then immediately identified. I was like, uh-oh, I'm now spilling into this becoming unhealthy. And mm-hmm. as soon as I go from this was helping me to, uh-oh, this is now becoming almost a um, it's detrimental to my mindset, then I now know that borderline. But I don't think some people, if you haven't been through that, are necessarily aware that they're doing it out of a bad relationship with food versus a healthy relationship with your body. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a sticky, it's a sticky wicket, like let's be honest and yeah. very transparent. I think there are people who are susceptible to orthorexia, like not only are they fasting, but then they're paranoid about eating anything, quote unquote, however they de- deem it to be unhealthy. They won't eat in a restaurant, they stress about everything. I think people, if you suspect you might have a disordered relationship with food, then you probably do, and that's okay. I mean, half the battle is acknowledging the behavior in order to work through it. And as I mentioned, I do have a coach on my team who healed her disordered relationship with food through fasting. But I think she's probably someone that's much more self-aware. So I typically will say to people, um, I think it's very important to work with a therapist or a clinical psychologist that is well-versed in eating disordered behavior so that you can both come together and determine if you are in a position to actually successfully, healthfully fast. That's usually my go-to mechanism. Like, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not an eating disorder specialist, mm-hmm. but I've certainly seen a lot of eating disorder behavior over 25 years of working with patients. And so for me, it's always like, if you think you might, you probably do. Because I talk to so many women and I'll say to them, do you feel like fasting for you is, is triggering your binge eating? Right, that was going to be my next yeah. thing, is like, how do you work with the binge eating? Because that's what people... Yeah, def- it, and it's interesting. So again, I think it really goes back to, um, you know, working with a, a therapist or someone who's knowledgeable in this space so they can help kind of set up strategies mm. to help support them. But I, I always say, like, did you fast too long? Mm. Did you fast? Did you not have the right foods when you broke your fast? Because if people say to me, I fasted for 13 hours and I ate like five Big Macs and five fries, I'm like, okay, that's different than someone who fasts for 14 or 15 hours and then sits down and, you know, they eat chicken and then they have some soup and then they have some bread. And next thing they've had like, you know, three meals worth of food. And I'm like, you need to make sure you're eating enough. If your body perceives that you're not going to give it nourishing food, you know, you get this overriding of the prefrontal cortex. So your amygdala, which is your reptile brain is like, Star, I'm starving, mm. nothing's coming, and you don't have no executive function because your brain is stressed. 
that can happen. So it's like there are multiple psychological contributors. But I always say to people, if if you're really feeling like every time you break your fast, you're binging, then it's probably not a good strategy for you. And that's okay. Like, let me be very clear. Not every person's going to have success. And that is totally okay. Like, there's no shame in that. But some people have to do things a little differently. Maybe they're like literally 12 hours of digestive rest and they just stop and see how things are going. And then, you know, can they get can they get their protein needs met in that window and then maybe go 30 minutes longer a couple weeks later and see and stop and see how they feel. So not everyone who starts fasting is going to rapidly get to 16 hours fasted. Mm -hmm. Some people it's four to six weeks. It can take longer or some people it's just not appropriate given what it triggers in them emotionally and psychologically. Yeah, that's so important to say and to identify. And for me, it re- I did go from, okay, the app, right? So I was like, ooh, let me see how much I can do. And then once I realized, okay, it's become unhealthy now, I've crossed that line, mm-hmm. let me get rid of the app. And then I just stopped. And it's funny how I always end up coming back to this. It's like, how do you feel? And so I realized, okay, going to bed earlier is very, is literally night and day for me on how I feel with my gut the next day. So that was non-negotiable for me. Mm -hmm. I've identified that 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. is perfect. I have to stay up for at least three hours. And now the next day in the morning, I'm just not going to look at a time. And for about a week, I can't remember how long I did it for, but I was like, you're only going to eat when you say you're hungry. And I'm not going to look at the time. And what I realized was I started to get hungry around 10 Mm o'clock. And so if my last meal is at five and I'm starting to eat at 10, I I inevitably found my beautiful, perfect fasting window. And that's perfect. And I I think for each one of us, it's examining what works for us. Mm. I know for me, if I end at five o'clock by nine or 10, I am very hungry. And if I've lifted that morning, because I tend to work out fasted, I can tell. And I think if you're metabolically flexible, you can intuitively fast. And that's when I'll say to people like, don't, Mm. don't, you know, don't force yourself to fast two more hours just because if you're hungry, you're really hungry, then eat. And so I think it's important for people to know that the biggest, one of the biggest, one of the things I like to teach about fasting is it's designed to be flexible. Mm -hmm. So I don't love rigidity of any kind. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's an important distinction. I'm like rigid, rigid dogmatism is a bad thing. And I think it's, it's very important for people to acknowledge like, where are you in time and space? What life stage are you at? Are you 35 and under? Are you perimenopausal? Are you menopausal? And then understanding each stage requires kind of a different strategy. Some things are similar, but most things are not. And understanding that we should we should stop apologizing for our physiology. Like I grew up in the time when we were like, oh, we don't want to talk about our menstrual cycle. We don't mm-hmm. want to talk about our period. God forbid I have a tampon. God forbid anyone talks about, you know, mm-hmm. any of these things in, in mixed company. And yet we shouldn't apologize. Our, our physiology is what makes us unique and beautiful. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't feel like we have to apologize for it. Yeah, I, I find it um, like, for instance, weight loss. It's something that I know that you really talk about and you do a beautiful, delicate job. Um, And I'm trying to find the right words even in me talking to you about it because I don't ever want someone to think that they have to lose weight to Mm -hmm. be validated, to feel good about themselves. Never, ever. But I also don't want to ignore the fact that many people do want to lose weight for their own personal reasons. And so how do we start to talk about losing weight, giving women the tools to be able to do it healthily of course um without it being a triggering thing without it saying that like hey you have to do it or you should be doing it but really from a this is why it benefits your health and if you do this you're going to be around for a long time mm-hmm. 
I think weight loss, weight loss resistance is a very touchy subject. I had a mom that was, I think, shamed by her father because she, you know, was, she was very voluptuous. And I think it it triggered things in my grandfather that, you know, he made her weight an issue. And I think my mother spent her entire lifetime being very fixated on her weight. And I I think that can be very damaging um, long term. So so I, I certainly have that experience growing up and then in talking to thousands and thousands of women so I think you have to come from a place of sensitivity, you know, understanding who you're talking to and being very clear, like, are you in a position where, you know, you're 40 years old and you want to weigh the way you did at 18? And I'm like, is that realistic? Because I know I don't weigh what I weighed at 18. I have more muscle on me than I did mm-hmm. at that time. But I think people get fixed on the scale. They get fixed on a number, like an arbitrary number. I want to wear X size. Well, why? You know, what is the purpose? Mm-hmm. Like, let me understand and oftentimes it's like, oh, that's the size I wore before I got married, or that's the size I wore before I had kids, or that's the size I want to get back to after breastfeeding, or whatever it is. And I'm like, but it, but how did, so let's just talk about or unpack, how does that help you long term? Like, is that extra 10 pounds, like whatever it is, 10 pounds, 20, 30, 40, 50, how is that going to serve you? And I think it's important for us to, you know, talk about Sometimes weight loss is what needs to occur in our heads and not necessarily in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Sometimes our mindset is really is really defunct, defunctional, dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when I when I talk to women about their goals, which almost always are weight loss, it's like okay, let's let's talk, let's unpack. Like, what are you already doing? If someone says to me, "I don't sleep more than six hours a night," I can't manage my stress, inflammatory food. You know, standard American diet is a great example of that. Um, you know, really looking at their relationship with exercise. Are you exercising at all? Because something as simple as taking a walk after a meal is going to help with insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Something that simple, like we're not even talking about a gym, but are they doing six hours a week of chronic cardio? Um, you know, looking at gut health, we talked about that. Um, looking at toxins in their environment, personal care products and food. Um, really looking about, if you look at the research on trauma as one example, Women that have had a, a certain amount of adverse childhood events are more at risk for autoimmune disease. They're more at risk for weight gain in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond. So trauma histories. So really looking at like what's driving what's going on for them. Meal frequency, obviously, if they're eating snacks and mini meals all day long and they're drinking sugary beverages, that is certainly going to contribute. So once I get a sense of where all those things fit in, then I can I pick the low frying fruit. Okay, let's get you to sleep through the night. Because I can't, I can't get you to lose weight until you sleep through the night, mm. and that's based on research. You know, we know that you get um, issues with dysregulation of blood sugar, leptin, ghrelin, all these hunger and satiety hormones. I always say, like when I had kids at home that were infants and breastfeeding, and I wasn't sleeping well, I didn't crave steak. I craved junk. Like I craved sugar. I made tons and tons of cookies when I was breastfeeding my kids because I just couldn't get enough food on board. It was a choice. I mean, I think about it now. I'm like, I just wasn't eating the right foods. But I think for a lot of people, starting with low-lying fruit, like, what's your sleep like? Most women don't sleep enough. And so, you know, it, it could be as simple as you get them sleeping through the night, and then they're able to better moderate in blood, with their blood sugar, and then you adjust some macros and get them eating differently. And that might could that, that alone could be the reason. Mm. Now, some people, it's, they, they're really weight loss resistant, and it's more complicated than that. And you start doing labs. So there's multiple layers. But I think when I'm talking to women about, they bring it up, not me. Um, it always has to be from a place of comfort for them. But being sensitive and just kind of 
getting a sense of what else are they doing in their lifestyle that could be contributing to why they're not losing weight. And yeah. doing it in a thoughtful manner. I always say to my kids, I can say anything to anyone, provided I say it in a thoughtful, respectful manner. You said something, I didn't want to interrupt you, but why is it that young or that people that have had trauma in their childhood are more likely to have weight issues? It's interesting because I, I just recently um, interviewed Gabor Mate. And I mean, it, his book was just like blew my mind. Uh, and if you and actually Sarah Gottfried, she was on my podcast and she was the first person that brought it up and said adverse childhood events greater than six. So there's you can actually take this this test or assessment online. Um, you are at greater risk for developing autoimmune issues. And so I suspect it's chronic cortisol. So sympathetic dominance, chronic cortisol, you know, cortisol is not a bad hormone. It gets a bad rep. <laughs> but if you have chronically high cortisol for a long period of time, that's high blood sugar, high insulin. Um, I think it it's creates some this, stress, correct? Yes. And so I, I think that it kind of sets things up, but they also have this triggered like response where, you know, it, something benign happens, but it brings them back to abandonment issues or maybe abuse that they, you know, sustained as a child. And so I think that those people are at greatest risk. And so obviously I don't have a handle on all mm -hmm. the research that's been done, but that's, that's kind of my supposition about what's contributing to that. But it's, it's a, definitely a risk factor. And, and, as I've learned more about trauma myself, I'm like, wow, that makes sense. Like, that really makes sense. Dude, this is like huge right now because, God, when I think about if you've been a child and you've had trauma, like real trauma, mm -hmm. and now as you get older, with the weight gain, the potential of your self-esteem then mm -hmm. going down, and like to think that it all stems from these things that have happened as a child that mm -hmm. we had didn't necessarily have the control over, yeah. it's hot heartbreaking and maybe at the same time amazing discovery mm -hmm. because when I think about how we blame ourselves for you know like for instance me with my gut right it, it I did it to myself and you know people that do I think overeat do mm -hmm. have that emotional because I've got people in my life who have told me this they do have that emotion where it's like they overeat and then they feel badly about mm -hmm. themselves because they overeat and it becomes this cycle vicious cycle and so now to be able to say, well, actually, it's this thing that has this trauma or the scar that you've held with you all this time. And it stems from childhood, just like with psychology, that we can now start to piece apart and distance ourselves, our current selves with our childhood selves. Maybe this is a beautiful discovery that you're making that now people can do that as well when it comes to weight and how they feel about themselves. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when I was interviewing Gabber, like I have had childhood trauma that I've, you know, I've been deal I've dealt with, I'm in a good place, but he was coaching me as we were recording. And I remember saying, to, as I was doing my podcast intro after I said, this is the most personal podcast you've ever heard from me. Wow because he was coaching me, but I think it's important for people to talk about, the, like in a, in a thoughtful way, like you don't want to put it all out there, but in a thoughtful way, people need to talk about what they've experienced. So they lessen the impact. I think a lot of people have a lot of shame and shame thrives in secrecy. And so it's important for people to get it out, like in a safe place, whether it's, it, whether it's a therapist, a psychologist, your, you know, your healthcare practitioner, your girlfriend, Whoever is, you know, receptive to being that resource person, but it's important to talk about this stuff. There's far too much shame that goes on for women that they don't. Do you mind sharing what the, um, the, the breakthrough was for you in the interview? Uh, you know, it's interesting. So my, my father um, and I have always had like a very tenuous relationship. My parents have been divorced since I was seven. My dad has been an alcoholic my whole life. 
And so the big thing for me, um, and I've been in a good place after a lot of therapy with my relationship with my dad, because my, I suspect my dad's on the Asperger's spectrum, mm. autism spectrum, and um, you know he experienced a lot of trauma growing up, and that's where the alcoholism fed in for him. And so, you know, I, I was saying to Gabor, like, I view him so compassionately now because I really understand, like, my parents did the very best they could. Mm-hmm. Like, I always say, I didn't get the parents I wanted. I got the parents I needed because my kids will not have the intergenerational abuse and trauma that I experienced. Mm-hmm. So I always say it stops with me. But I said the really powerful thing is I just view him with compassion. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no judgment. There's no, like, oh, you weren't the father I wanted you to be. I'm like that tired narrative doesn't get anyone anywhere. It's like, I view you compassionately because you must've gone through a lot to have, have been an addict your whole life mm-hmm. like that. And it, that's sad, but it's also, I view him with compassion. I'm like, you know, it, it's just a very different way, a very different flow state to be in. It's like, it is what it is. Um, it obviously my parents made me into the person that I am today. And I'm grateful for that because I wouldn't be who I am. But I, lo- I look at it and, and Gabor got me talking quite a bit about it. Like, just like, do you understand that your dad must have had profound trauma to have been that much of an alcoholic? And I said, oh, absolutely. I totally get that. But it's like, you just feel like, you're like, gosh, I have boys. I can't imagine one of my children feeling so, you know, traumatized that they spend their entire life having an addiction to a substance that they, they don't have the ability to stop mm. using. Thank you for sharing that. And what I think is even more beautiful is you saying that you've got now compassion for your mm-hmm. dad because you've identified that trauma. The hope is that now people hopefully maybe have compassion for themselves. Yes. If they find themselves in situations where they're unable to, you know, maybe um, change their lives mm-hmm. or show up maybe to do the things that you're laying out. Mm-hmm. And it's like instead of beating yourself up and saying, you're no good, you're a loser, you can't even do this. Like being able to give yourself that compassion and say, mm-hmm. look, it comes from trauma, I think is a massive key because that identifying piece, go at least for me, goes, oh, Okay, I won't judge myself now. And now that I don't judge myself, it almost then, uh, um, like I said, separates my emotion from the situation. And now I can come up with almost a game plan. And everything that you've written in the book and everything I feel like we've discussed today now allows me to put the game plan, Mm -hmm. plan into action. But the moment that you feel lost, the moment that you don't know where to pivot, the moment where you feel like you're trying things or, you know, you're kind of in this spiral and you don't know where to turn, then just feeds into the fact that you feel worthless shame embarrassment yeah and it's a time to take a pause like i i jokingly say to my kids how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time so when you're feeling overwhelmed lost it's like stop what's the one thing you can do next that's what you focus on I love that. Um, If you don't want, I would actually love you break it down in your book in real detail. But if you don't want us going over, even in that first month, if someone's now wanting to fast, Mm -hmm. they've done the work, they've listened to what we've said, and they're like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm ready. Um, Take us through that one month. You really beautifully like break out from day one to day seven. If you don't mind doing a couple of those um, so that people can know where to start, that would be amazing. Well, I think the most important thing is to set yourself up for success. So if you've got crap in your pantry, because I encourage everyone to go lower carb, average Americans consuming 200 to 300 grams of carbs a day. So what? Yeah. And that's, and a lot lot of that's, and a lot of that's related to beverages, beverages. So people are drinking, like they're drinking their calories. So tons and tons of carbohydrates. So I encourage people to go under a hundred grams and to start tracking their carbohydrates and tracking their protein I encourage them, like, clean out your pantry. 
Like set yourself up for success. If there, if there's like your kryptonite in there, like it's a chip, uh, candy, whatever it is, get rid of it. Mm. Just get rid of it because it's not benefiting you. Um, and so that's a, a good starting point. And then it's the slow progression going from dinner to breakfast and then slowly opening up that fasting window. So maybe you go from 13 hours to 13 and a half, you go to 14 and then slowly opening up, kind of getting to that 16 hours fasted, which for many people can take because you're doing all these other things. You're not snacking, mm. you're restructuring your macros, you cleaned out your pantry. Now it's like all your vices are gone. And so you're like, okay, how do I manage and mitigate all these changes all at once? And then it's that slow progression. And, and I always remind people, the more carbohydrate dependent they are, aka insulin resistant, mm-hmm. it can take them longer. Like they could take four to six weeks to get to a point where their body is effectively able to access stored fat as a fuel source, because that's what allows us to go from, you know, looking at it from, you know, 14 hours to 16 to 18 and doing it without as much pain and anguish that people, people say like, I'm white knuckling fasting. Okay, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, let's back it up. And then the other piece to really consider and think about is where are you in your menstrual cycle? So if you're at the beginning of your cycle, that's the time you can get away with more fasting versus, you know, women will text me and they'll say, I don't know why I can barely get to 14 hours. I'm like, where are you in your cycle? And they'll look at their app. They're like, oh, I'm supposed to get my period in two days. I'm like, stop fasting so long. So I think those are the things that I typically recommend that people are thoughtful about. Set yourself up for success. Get the junk out of your pantry. I have teenagers, so there's always some, I always say like, thankfully the stuff they want that's junk, we always get a healthier version, but it's never stuff I want to eat. So it's not tempting. But if you have kryptonite in your house, get rid of it and then slowly start opening up that feeding and fasting windows to kind of experiment to find out. And like leaning into your menstrual cycle is really important. So I love this so much and I get very technical and I like (laughs) tactics. Um, And so when you're even saying, you know, well, where are you in a cycle? Would you recommend a woman to maybe get a calendar and put in their menstrual yes. cycle when they start and then kind of preempt to let you know, because going back to judgment, I was like, that woman probably is like, what the hell? I can't even fast for 14 hours, right? And now she's beating herself up. Yeah. Whereas if you set yourself up for success, which is what I'm always trying to do, if you put that on a calendar and you put like, okay, now you can go and do that, um, you know, that the sprint or that mm-hmm. marathon. And then this is the time to do yoga, like yeah, to kind exactly. of like plan all of that out. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us that are visually oriented, like I am, yeah. I like knowing like, okay, these are the, this is a green light day. And this is a yellow, like getting around after ovulation might be yellow, red, that five to seven days preceding your menstrual cycle. And the question I usually get is what do I do if I'm on the pill? Well, you know, if you're on the pill, you have an IUD. I mean, it's very different because if you look at the patterns of, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, it looks like a menopausal woman because, you know, everything's blunted. The communication between the brain and the ovaries are disconnected to prevent pregnancy. But I would say, you know, lean into like the lunar calendar. So, you know, full moon is when menstruation starts, you know, just be cycling on and off. Now, sometimes I get angry messages from women that are like, I feel good if I fast, you know, 30 days out of my month. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, do what you need to do. You know, I'm like, I'm not there to force you beguile you, push you, force you. I mean, that's just not part of my mentality. So I I think for people understanding, like there's a time to put the gas on, take the gas off. Um, Having that visual representation, I think is a great idea because for a lot of people, they need that to remind themselves. Mm. So tell me what it's doing to our sex hormones. Well, it depends on the individual. It depends on where you are life stage. So obviously, if you're on oral contraceptives, the sad thing is it blunts your sex hormone binding globulin goes up and that kind of scavenges up extra hormones. So 
The sad thing is you prevent pregnancy, but you have no libido. So that can happen, not vis-a-vis fasting, but just related to oral contraceptives. Um, I think about, you know, where women's testosterone levels are. We know that around ovulation, that's when we get these peaks in testosterone, which is what increases women's libido so that they're going to look for a mate to potentially fertilize an egg, et cetera, lead to a pregnancy. Um, I, I think on a lot of different levels, I think that when we're looking at that axis of like stress and sleep and all of those things, we have a hormone hierarchy in our body. So obviously oxytocin, cortisol, insulin are like the hormone hierarchy. Those have to be balanced first. And then secondary to that, we have our sex hormones. And so it's important to understand that if you're totally stressed out, if you're not sleeping, if you're over-exercising, over-restricting, guess what you're doing? Your body preferentially is going to fuel addressing this you know, chronic cortisol stimulation, insulin stimulation mm-hmm. at the expense of your sex hormones. So making sure that you are not over-stressing your body so that you have this downward effect of suppressing some of your sex hormones, I think is an important distinction. So when a woman who's in her peak fertile years, tells me she has no libido and she's not on the pill. I'm like, that's a concern, right? Mm. But if you're perimenopausal, menopausal, you get fluctuations in hormones. I mean, they're all over the place. Um, More often than not, it's from low testosterone levels that can drive that. But more often than not, it's secondary to chronic stress and chronic inflammation and chronic sleep deprivation. And so really getting in check with that. I think that's probably more the issues that I see more so than fasting, but understanding that fasting is a type of stress. So if your body's overly stressed and you throw fasting and it's like adding gasoline to a fire but what if it was the opposite though and then fasting because for me like i said fasting actually helps with my inflammation Mm -hmm. so now my inflammation goes down wouldn't that then help my sex hormone potentially i mean potentially i think there's so many things that mitigate if your body feels you know we have this autonomic nervous system and so we have the sympathetic which Mm -hmm. is the you know fight or flight you're being chased by a rabid animal parasympathetic is rest and repose like when you digest your food when you have an orgasm when you're relaxed and so understanding that if things are balanced properly you can relax and have all those things going Mm. so i think it's more about that stress response if the stress response is balanced and i'm oversimplifying things i think that can contribute to having a healthy libido because if your mind is running about this massive to-do list and the work you've got to do and you know, the five loads of laundry and you got to pick a kid up. I mean, no one's thinking about having sex with their husband or their partner. They're like, I got a lot of stuff on my mind. And women's minds are multitasking. Men's are solitary. I'm sure most men, it's like anytime, anywhere with their partner, they're happy. Women are like, nope, it's got to be this and this and this. Like all these things have to be in the right place <laughs> in order for me to feel ready to have sex. And so I think it's it's the way our brains are kind of designed. We take in a lot of information all at mm. once. We don't have tunnel vision like men men can focus on one thing at a time. I think that definitely contributes. So I know you get asked this a lot, but because we brought up men, what is the difference between the the benefits for men for fasting and then the women? Well, I think men have an easier time with fasting. They generally have more lean muscle mass, generally speaking, than women do. Obviously, they don't have all these cycling hormones. Um, I, I feel like men generally will see results faster and changes in body composition. I jokingly always say, like, my husband's, you know, very healthy and very fit, but like when he started fasting, it was like a duck to water. It was like he just mm-hmm. just went off and did it and like lost weight and felt great and did all these things. And whereas if you look at studies, if men and women at the same time initiate fasting, it takes women longer. And it's mm-hmm. because of our hormones. We have higher, you know, we have h- higher body fat in most instances. And so when I look at men and women, I think men, it's less complicated, mm-hmm. just like the menopausal women. But men, it's so much less complicated. 
But we are, as women, supposed to have more fat than men, right? Correct. And that's it's tied into fertility. And then, you know, you go through perimenopause, menopause, and we have all these body composition changes that are relative to this continued muscle loss. So you're right. And that's why I always emphasize women need to maintain their muscle mass in order to maintain body composition and, and just be metabolically flexible. How do you, I want to say persuade women to lift, but I know you can't necessarily persuade someone, but it's like, it changed my freaking life, girl. I was that that girl on the freaking treadmill that was counting <laughs> the calories that was like, oh my God, I've only run for 35 minutes. That You know, come on, you lazy person. Like I was beating myself up so much and I was like, I'm not going to lift muscle because that's just more weight. Like, you know, like I want to step on the scale and be heavier. Mm-hmm. The whole point is to be the opposite. And because of my gut issues, I couldn't run on the treadmill, which then allowed me to have moments where I'm like, well, I can either lift the weight or not work out mm-hmm. at all. And then in lifting the weight was the thing that allowed me to go, oh my God, it's so powerful. But right now, I don't want people to dismiss you saying, put on muscle. Yeah, it's important. I always say your metabolic health is important when we know that only 88.2% of Americans are metabolically healthy. It is critically important. I don't care if you start with body weight exercise and bands and you progress to working with a trainer. Maybe you just work with a trainer until you get comfortable in the gym. It is so important. It is not just about aesthetics. It is about your metabolic health, being insulin sensitive. How many women north of 40 come to me and they are devastated because they're like, this is not, I'm not even changed anything. And all of a sudden, I'm, I have fluff in places I don't want it. My pants don't fit. I don't feel like, you know, I, I just don't feel like my normal self. And having to understand like those, those four things I talked about, sleep, stress, anti-inflammatory nutrition, strength training are so important for maintaining metabolic health. But starting from a place anywhere is better than nothing. Like anything is better than nothing. But stop the chronic cardio and start lifting some weights. And like I said, if it's just body weight to start, that's great. That's a great starting point. And if you don't feel comfortable in the gym, get a trainer. Or, you know, I always say, like, I think having a personal trainer, at least for a period of time, is very helpful for people who have no um, reference point or don't understand how to lift and be safe. And so that's why I think it's so, so important. It's like, hire someone that can help you be safe and help you navigate like women that have knee problems or hip problems or shoulder problems, like how to do, how to do these things safely. Um, you know, I have a, an online trainer and I just kind of check in with her periodically. It's like, give me the program. I go to the gym and I do it, but I acknowledge I've been lifting for a long time. Mm. There are people who are new to it. Don't be fearful of it. Muscle is not about just about aesthetics. It is about metabolic health. And if you want to avoid Alzheimer's, if you want to avoid these neurocognitive disorders, I mean, how many women come to me and they're like, my parents are both diabetic. My brother's diabetic. All my family members are diabetic. What do I do? And I'm like, um, well, I can tell you like five or six things to do automatically, but mm. one of them is lift weights. You know, think about your muscles as a metabolic sink. Think about the fact that just walking is your muscles contract. It's using glucose. It's using blood sugar. One of the easiest ways to lower your blood sugar after eating meals, go for a walk. Mm. Like super easy, super easy. 10 or 15 minute talk is super helpful. How much of the genetic part does uh, play into all of this? Uh, in terms of like obesity and being yeah. overweight? Um, I mean, it definitely changes things epigenetically. I mean, when I was in school, we talked about Pottinger's cats. And so it was this thought process like diseased cats, like cats that had unhealthy um, genetics that were bred into other cats. So it just kind of propagates things. Do I think that um, people who are gestationally diabetic, it can lead to their 
offspring having more likelihood of being obese and overweight. I think that weight, that is definitely there. People have a history of PCOS. Um, there is a thin type PCOS, so meaning um, people that have polycystic ovarian syndrome, they don't necessarily have to be obese to have polycystic ovarian syndrome, but at the root is insulin resistance. And you see that genetically mediated, like my mom had PCOS, several of my aunts had PCOS, I had PCOS, I was thin type PCOS, not everyone with PCOS is obese. Um, but just understanding that, yes, those things can be epi- can make epigenetic changes that can make you more likely. That's why sometimes you'll see families where the parents are obese, the kids are obese. Mm. And a lot of it's food choices, but a lot of it's also like chronic inflammation, insulin resistance that plays a role. And so do they need to approach things in a different way? Well, I mean, I think that they have to be more proactive. I mean, if you're more prone to being obese and overweight, you know, the, the genetic chips are there. And when it's epigenetics, it's like, does it turn on the gene? Does it not turn mm. on the gene? So understanding that, you know, lifestyle is still very important. I always say, like, I'll give you an example. Like, I have many family members, many generations back, they're alcoholics. Um, I don't think I could have ever been an alcoholic, even if I had a propensity for it, because it just doesn't make me feel good. But I do think it's that epigenetic piece, like, is the susceptibility there? Yes. But the behavior isn't. So I I think in a lot of different ways, and obviously this isn't my area of expertise, but when we're looking at generational changes, like mom had diabetes, grandmother had diabetes, most people that have type 2 diabetes, it's a lifestyle issue. Mm -hmm. It's not that it just happened. Like it's not an autoimmune issue like type 1, but when we're seeing children being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, something I never thought I would see in my lifetime, and you're seeing more and more kids that have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you've got kids that have displaying, you know, metabolic syndrome. I mean, it's incredibly sad. And so you just start to think nature nurture plays a role, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's definitely something to be, you know, proactive about. If you yourself know that you are insulin resistant or diabetic, um, do everything you can to try to reverse that. It is something that is reversible. And, you know, a lot of my colleagues are now de-prescribing Meaning that they are mm. they are proud of the fact that they're getting their patients off diabetes medications, cholesterol medications, high blood pressure medications, because of changes in lifestyle, and that to me is really encouraging. Like understanding it does not have to be a life sentence. It is not normal to need to be on blood pressure medication. Mm. It is not normal. At the base of that is insulin resistance. Same thing with a lot of these other lifestyle disorders. So that can be changed. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease can be changed. PCOS can be reversed. I mean, all these things that we have thought of as being like, once you have them, you've got them. Mm. I don't think that's the case. I love the idea of being able to reverse all this because um, as you were talking, I was thinking, right? Like if you're young and you've got the genetic, uh, what is it? Predisposition. Predisposition, thank you. If you've already got that. And then now it's also epigenetics and you put those two together. By the time you're like 18, you've like, you've got a whole load of stuff that you have to unpack in order for you to get back to that, to where you, let's say, want to be. Yeah. And and I think it's, to me, it's troubling because, you know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on social media. So I see friends I've had throughout my lifetime. And sometimes it's so sad. It's like, I'm looking at people. I went to my high school reunion a few years ago. Most of the guys look pretty good. You know, 30 year high school reunion. Most of the guys look pretty good. And a lot of the women either looked great or they just looked inflamed and they looked insulin resistant. And I was just like, dang, you cannot eat at 47 like you did at 18 or 17. Like you can't. And if you're still living that lifestyle, you're going to end up 
being a statistic. And it's like, I don't want that for people. It's mm. like, you don't have to live that way. It doesn't have to be your destiny. But guys can eat pretty much like no. loosely. Like, no, why do just, you think that the guys look decent and then the women, it was like a separate bucket? Well, I mean, most of my guy friends were still very active. They were still surfing. They were still exercising. That was a priority to them. Got it. A lot of the women that I saw were, I think they were, they were drinking a lot of alcohol. They were probably not eating a particularly healthy diet. They weren't active. I mean, I see photos of people that were all the same age and I'm like, I cannot believe we're all the same age. Like some people look 15 years older than we do. And that's sad. It doesn't have to be that way. So I keep going back to lifestyle definitely plays a huge role. And, and I, feel, I see a lot of middle-aged women where alcohol starts to become a problem on a lot of different levels. Because that's the thing they turn to as we get more stress and as women, we try to take on more things in today's society? Well, I think it's, 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 a, it's a, and this is not pejorative. I'm just saying some people, they use it because they can't sleep well because mm. it helps them. It's a sedative. So it helps them fall asleep. It doesn't help them stay asleep. Um, they do it because they're, they're not effectively utilizing stress reduction strategies. And so they think that's an easy thing. Like I was talking to someone recently and they were like, oh yeah, I have two glasses of wine every night. I'm like, it's actually not a good thing to drink that much wine. Like I didn't say that, but in my mind, I was like, if you really actually read the research on alcohol consumption, but I think for a lot of people, it's examining your relationship. Like if it's, if you can't get through the day without drinking, that's a problem. If you if that's your go-to, you know, resource for stress reduction, that's probably not the best thing to be doing. And certainly in middle age, things start to change in flux. And so for men and women, you can't eat like you did when you were 18. You just can't. So to be able to identify something like that would be, is it a need or a want? Yeah. And for a lot of people, it's that uncomfortable feelings. They don't want to deal with the uncomfortable feelings. So what's easier? It's like I numb it. Mm. Whether it's with food, whether it's with alcohol, whether it's, you know, illicit drugs, it's, you know, over-exercising, uh, porn. I mean, all these things that can play a role. Um, and, and we're very much dopamine kind of mediated. So it's like, oh, what lights my brain? It makes me feel good. It's temporary. Okay, let's do that. Do you think that's partly why we like fasting? Do you think that you do get that dopamine after um, like a 16-hour... I mean, you get counter-regulatory hormones like epinephrine and norepinephrine are up, and that helps to kind of blunt that hunger response when people are, you know, new to fasting and they feel like, okay, I can go longer without mm. eating. Um, I don't so much think it's a dopaminergic kind of um, uh, mechanism in the body. I do think people feel good when they are burning ketones. So when you're in a fasted state, you're burning ketones. Um, in fact, I'm burning ketones right now. I can tell. Um, well, you can tell I love that. Yeah, because you have a, so much mental clarity. And it's a great way, like your brain preferentially loves fat as a fuel source. Mm. And so when you're burning ketones, your brain's like, I am turned on, I'm on it. I can find all the words I need to say, string everything together, sound cohesive, sound confident. Yeah, I mean, that I think is what makes people feel good. Like those ketones, and there's something called beta-hydroxybutyrate, and that diffuses across the blood-brain barrier. And that makes people feel good. So I think it's, that's what I suspect it's more, that's my supposition. So we didn't even talk about ketones, but that was the added thing for me that when I put fasting with fat, changed my life. Mm. And the thing that I realized, I was that person, like I said, on the treadmill, that I then went to weight, I threw out my food scale and my measuring cups because I used to measure mm. everything. And I got to the point where I'm like, I'm just going to see what a world would look like for like a month or whatever if I didn't measure anything. And I just pour a bunch of olive oil on my food and don't even think about it and eat as much avocado as I like if mm -hmm. I'm hungry. 
Like you wouldn't believe it unless you actually do yeah. it. I felt full. I felt like mental clarity. So that mixed with fasting was just like the next level. And then of course I pushed my ket- my ketogenics a little too far, and I got a little <laughs> obsessed. So I had I was like taking my ketones every single day. I had yeah. a, a continuous glucose mm-hmm. monitor, and then again I had to you know kind of ease off a little. Um, but just in general now, the the mind clarity is incredible. God, thank you so much. Like, there's so much more we can talk about. But where can people find you, your book, all the amazing things that you're doing? Thank you, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be your guest. It's just been amazing to be in your presence. So, um, probably easiest to start with my website, www.cynthiathurlow.com. I have an amazing podcast called Everyday Wellness. Um, and I co-host another podcast called the Intermittent Fasting Podcast with Melanie Avalon, which is a lot of fun. My book you can find on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, any of those retailers. And you can find me on social media. I'm probably most active on Instagram. So it's Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. I'm a little snarky on Twitter, so be forewarned. And then I have a free Facebook group on um, a free Facebook group on Facebook that's uh, Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name, which is a great group of men and women. And we kind of, you know, delve into different topics. Oh my God, I love that. Guys, guys, you've got to go check her out. You've got to go check out her book. And honestly, I'm so damn dedicated to female health. So guys, hopefully today was just the start for you and your journey. Drop in the comments, what was the thing that was so damn fire that she told you that you're going to start today? If you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu and subscribe. Click that bell as well so that you can be notified for more episodes just like this. And until next time, guys, be the hero of your own life. Peace.